there is always some form of autophagy happening. The degree depends a lot on your energy status. Any kind of protein can affect autophagy, but some proteins and some amino acids affect it less. While you're fasting, your autophagy tends to ramp up. Are you going to get your glucose from eating or are you going to get your glucose from exercise? The goal isn't necessarily going to be calorie restriction. The goal is to find why does calorie restriction work. Your body adapts always to the stimulus that it receives. The problem is never the food itself. The problem is always the particular attachment to it. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Today's episode is a deep, deep dive into all things autophagy. If you're familiar with intermittent fasting, you might be pretty familiar with the idea of autophagy. We talk about it all the time on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, but I think autophagy is pretty misunderstood. People think it's either on or off, and it's honestly very fascinating. You know it's a good conversation when you have it one time, and then you're down to have it again. You'll see what I mean by that. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash autophagy. I am a Himalaya-partnered show, and if you follow the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast in the Himalaya app, you will get early access to the podcast 24 hours in advance, so definitely check that out. Also, please join me in my Facebook community group, that is Paleo OMAD Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. It's a wonderful community for discussing all the things. If you have any questions about autophagy or anything we discuss on this episode, that's definitely the place to talk about it along with anything else you'd like to discuss. I'm also trying to be more active on Instagram. It's a personal goal (laughs) because Instagram kind of terrifies me, as you know. But definitely follow me at Melanie Avalon. I'll be posting more about all of the biohacking things, supplements I like, food, random musings, just all the stuff. I hope everybody had a fantastic Christmas. Merry late Christmas to everybody. Happy holidays. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. So I am so, so excited to be here today with somebody that I feel very familiar with, and I feel like we've been here before. That is Seamland. And for listeners, we actually recorded this episode like a month ago, and we lost the file. So here we are again, but it's all good because I'm actually pretty much obsessed with all of Seam's work, love talking to him, and listeners are probably very familiar with his work. He is the host of the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast, which as listeners know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but that is one of my all-time favorites, and it's amazing. I cannot recommend enough that listeners check it out. And he's also the author of a fantastic book that I have been talking about seem on my other podcast, the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I pretty much refer listeners now to that book like every episode. It is called Metabolic Autophagy, Practice Intermittent Fasting and Resistance Training to Build Muscle and Promote Longevity. And it is a wonder. It is the deepest of deep dives into autophagy. It answers so many questions I had had for 
so long about so many things. So super excited to get into some of that today. So Seem, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, glad to talk with you again. And I'm also super excited to talk about astrology. I know, it's amazing. So to start things off, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your personal health history and what made you so interested in autophagy and everything that you talk about in the biohacking world? Yeah, yeah. Well, usually when people get into biohacking, then they come from this history of some disease or some other condition, but that's not the case for me. I've been pretty healthy all my life. I've never had like any weight issues or I've never had like some health conditions either, but I've always just been somewhat average and uh, mediocre in terms of like the genetics and those sort of things. But since my high school years, I got into weightlifting and doing some form of like just building muscle and improving my body composition. And since that time, I've been very interested in nutrition and the metabolism and how do you, you know, achieve a specific result in terms of your body. And with that, I stumbled upon intermittent fasting in my high school. And uh, that was my kind of first introduction to optimizing your nutrition and meal timing and then those sort of things. But I practiced it for quite a lot of few years before I actually started creating content about it. And in my college, I started my blog where I did like different experiments and just generally practiced writing and those things. And fasting was a like a re-emerging topic that I covered. And since that time, I've just gradually gotten more into the science of it, as well as more of the physiology. And eventually, I just decided to write a book about autophagy because autophagy specifically, because at that time, the kind of trend of autophagy has been growing for quite a few years, but there's still like a lot of misconceptions about it. And people don't know exactly how it works. And they also think that it's only like the best thing ever and that there are no side effects. Whereas if you actually look into the research, then there are a few side effects and it's definitely not like this, you know, black and white uh, solution to everything. So yeah, that's why I wrote the book because the goal of the book Metabolic Katabachi is to kind of bridge this gap between achieving, let's say, optimal muscle development and longevity with the help of intermittent fasting. So how do you get the benefits of autophagy while at the same time still being able to train and improve your body composition and maintain leanness, so to say? Yeah, you really hit the nail when you talked about all the misconceptions surrounding autophagy, because I know on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, we get very basic questions about autophagy, but a lot of them are very much the same. It's like, when does autophagy start? People think that it's either on or off. Right. People want to know sort of like a similar thing, like what breaks a fast. And I think it's definitely kind of like people think fasting is, I don't know, it's very similar to something like fasting that I think is even more complicated than most people realize. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, you said you were originally going to call the book something else. What was it? Originally, it was going to be like anabolic autophagy, which refers to like the aspect of anabolism and growing muscle tissue. So anabolism is the growth of new cells and new tissue. So when you're building muscle, then you're being anabolic. And, you know, if you say autophagy itself is like the opposite of anabolism, autophagy is catabolism and breakdown. So you can't really build muscle with autophagy. But if you combine the title with anabolic autophagy, then you could. <laughs> if you like practice a good resistance training routine and you also have like your nutrition optimized. So it is still possible to, you know, build muscle with intermittent fasting. You just have to know like how to do it and what kind of foods to eat. 
Yeah, I remember you saying that. I remember thinking a beautiful irony of that title (laughs) (laughs) and how it would probably go over a lot of people's heads. But well, I think metabolic autophagy is great. So speaking of, there's two big concepts in that title, the metabolism and autophagy. I guess, can we start with a basic overview of metabolism since it does all relate to how our cells are producing, generating, using energy? Yeah, your metabolism is kind of describes Everything that is related to just energy production and living, being alive requires metabolic processes and you need to like generate energy in order to survive. And the metabolism is divided into two subcategories. One of them is anabolism, which is the growth of new cells. And the other is catabolism, which is the breakdown of new cells or, you know, old cells and existing cells. During the day, you're constantly cycling in between those two states because uh, the body can't be in both states at the same time. Because in nature, if you were to be constantly growing, then you're kind of putting yourself in danger of dying and running out of resources, because in nature there are an abundance of endless amount of resources. In nature, you're, you're going to always have to be very like rational and be very cautious with how much energy are you using and where are you directing it. So whenever your body is growing, and it's in an anabolic state, it's not going to be catabolic where it's breaking down and vice versa. If it's catabolic, then it can't grow because it's in this conservation mode, so to say, that it's trying to promote its survival for longer. And during the day, yeah, you're cycling in between those two states. And for example, if you're fasting, then you're naturally going to be catabolic. That's where the autophagy process tends to ramp up. And when you eat, you stop autophagy and shift into the anabolic state which is going to repair tissues and potentially build new tissue as well, depending on the kind of situation. So yeah, like when you're eating, you go into anabolism and when you fast, you're in catabolism. Okay. So I do have a question about that and perhaps it'll make more sense when we dive deeper into autophagy itself, but maybe we should define autophagy first before I start asking the questions. Okay. (laughs) So the concept of autophagy, could you provide a basic overview of that as how it relates to the metabolism? And then I'll bring in my question. Yeah. Autophagy translates into self-eating. And as the name says, it's a catabolic process during which your body is recycling cell components that are worn out and are causing damage and are causing inflammation. So it's almost like a cleanup crew where your body is just, okay, we need to kind of tighten it up a little bit and eliminate the junk that we don't need. And in terms of the metabolism, then autophagy is more than just this on and off switch. It's more of like a very intricate part of healthy cellular functioning. So there is always some form of autophagy happening, but the degree depends a lot on your energy status and energy balance, so to say. So that's why while you're fasting, your autophagy tends to ramp up because you're under higher energy stress and the body just tries to rationalize itself or you know become more rational and become more conservative if that makes sense and vice versa if you're eating then there's still like you know autologists involved with more processes other than cell breakdown it's also involved in the process of fat oxidation as well as just eliminating pathogens and bacteria and in the microbiome as well so it's a very intricate part of a healthy cellular metabolism That was something I learned. Was it xenophagy? Was that the one that related to the bacteria and viruses? Yeah, I think there were over a dozen different types of autophagy. Like xenophagy is the autophagy of bacteria. And for example, mitophagy is the autophagy of mitochondria. 
And lipophagy is the autophagy of lipids and fat, essentially. That's crazy. So xeno, xeno, what, what, how do you say it? Xenophagy. Xenophagy. So that's the bacteria themselves doing the autophagy process or the body getting rid of the bacteria? Yeah, the body is getting rid of the autophagy. Like the process of autophagy is mediated through the formation of autophagosomes, which are like lysosomal you know, structures that essentially engulf the particle or the bacteria or the mitochondria that is about to be eaten. And they engulf it and the lysosomes are essentially like garbage bins or uh, they contain different enzymes that break down those ingredients. And autophagosomes are essentially just these formations that break down those nutrients or these uh, ingredients and then release them as energy and uh, particles. Gotcha. Love it. Love the idea of cleaning out some of that stuff out of your body. Okay. So that brings me back to my question. I don't know if I can express this correctly, but you were talking about anabolism and catabolism and how it's one or the other. So they're not existing at the same time. When you're in the catabolic state though, if you're breaking down protein and say autophagy is happening isn't there some sort of building happening at that same time? Is autophagy... Can it make you anabolic? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about this. Like, I'm confused about... Right. Because we say it's not on or off. Yeah. So is it on or off? That's exactly like when you are going through autophagy, then that is going to, you know, release some nutrients as well as like amino acids. So you're not really completely deprived from the energy when you have autophagy activated. And that's why it goes back to the idea that it's not like an on and off switch, because if autophagy would be like a complete on and off switch, then it would mean that whenever you are fasting, then you're kicking yourself all the time out of a faster state by creating the energy with autophagy, which is not actually what's happening. So when you are breaking down, let's say these mitochondria and these different proteins, then those nutrients get released, but they also get just used up by the body. And the amount of that energy is just so insignificant and so small that it's not going to completely switch you over into a, like a fully fed state. So, you know, there's probably going to be like a certain threshold that you can get away with. But I think where that threshold is, it's very hard to kind of pinpoint and identify. And it's also going to vary greatly between the individual and their particular energy status in the particular moment. So, for example, if you're sitting in your house, your energy burden is quite small. You're not really burning that much energy. And whereas if you were to you know, do like a sprint or do some jumping jacks, then your energy deprivation would also increase you know, the energy stress. And therefore, you would also experience higher rates of autophagy because of that. So it's not like so that exactly 16 hours or exactly 24 hours until I reach autophagy. It's, it's very much depending on the particular situation and the particular energy status in that moment. Yeah. So I think that's a big paradigm shift for a lot of listeners, just as far as autophagy happening, you know, at some sort of baseline all the time. So we know that fasting supports autophagy. Is fasting the quickest way into the most intense form of autophagy? Or are there other pathways that would actually lead to more autophagy? Exercise, compounds? Usually people associate autophagy with fasting. And it is true that, you know, the longer you fast, the more autophagy you're going to experience gradually uh, up to a certain point. But 
if you want to like really in this particular moment <laughs> stimulate some autophagy, then you can do some really high intensity exercise because that's also stimulates these same pathways as does fasting. And arguably it can also be faster because, for example, this stress from you know hill sprints or burpees or kettlebell swings is actually much higher than the stress you get from fasting. So there are some studies showing that, for example, even just like 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise also initiates the formation of these autophagosomes, which would indicate that the autophagy is beginning to happen. So just any kind of exercise itself will also promote it. And chances are that fasted exercise would lead to more autophagy than fed exercise because you're kind of stacking these stressors onto yourself with fasting as well as exercise. But yeah, like exercise is one, fasting is one, generally eating less calories also kind of increases the basal autophagy and certain compounds like coffee, teas, in even apple cider vinegar and, you know, these polyphenols, they're also shown to induce autophagy. So with the exercise instigating autophagy, does a certain amount of intensity more likely make a person burn a specific fuel substrate and would that affect autophagy? Like more likely be burning fat versus glucose, glycogen? Yeah, well, all of this balance between the anabolism and catabolism is determined by your liver glycogen. And the liver is like this sort of signaling ground that is constantly monitoring the energy status of your body. So it's like a very vital organ that is kind of central to your metabolic status. And liver glycogen itself can be depleted with fasting because it's supposed to, the role of liver glycogen is to balance your blood sugar and maintain that sort of uh, energy balance. And if you're fasting, your liver glycogen will gradually decrease And usually it's about like 20 to 24 hours to fully deplete your liver glycogen. And once liver glycogen is depleted, then you start to upregulate ketosis. And that's also probably when autophagy is going to gradually start to increase. That's why exercise will lead to like a faster autophagy because you're depleting the liver glycogen faster. So any, any form of exercise uses glycogen to a certain extent but especially like high intensity exercise will use more of the glycogen. Anything like lifting weights, hit cardio, it's going to burn more liver glycogen and it can probably lead to faster autophagy. But you can still achieve the same results with like just walking or low intensity cardio. It's just going to take like a longer period of time. That relates to a question we get all the time on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, which is a similar question to when does autophagy start? People will ask, when does the fasted state start? So is the fasted state an on-off thing? And is it determined completely by liver glycogen storage? Or are there ways around that? Are there other factors? Yeah, well, in truth, it is true that you, you're not going to start fasting immediately after you finish your last meal. Like your body still takes some time to digest the food. And it's also depending on what kind of food have you eaten. So for example, if you eat something that has fiber or something that has protein and fats, then it's inevitably going to take a longer time to digest. And your body is going to stay in this fed state several hours after having eaten. But I think it's it may just become like going too much into the details and kind of starting to micromanage these things that don't really matter in the end of the day, I would still categorize my starting point of my fast would still be the ending point of my last meal, maybe like add an additional hour after that. But yeah, generally, once you stop eating, you can start counting your fast, so to say, 
But, you know, yeah, in terms of the autophagy process, then you can still experience more autophagy by being mindful of what kind of foods are you eating or you can experience the benefits faster, so to say. So if you're not overeating calories, you're not gaining weight, then you're still going to get into autophagy faster because you're not like hoarding calories, you're not gaining excess energy. And also like maintaining some form of a carbohydrate restriction would also help you to experience the benefits faster because... Like we said, liver glycogen determines autophagy to a certain extent. And if you're eating a high-carb diet, then it's naturally going to take you a longer time to get into ketosis as well as to get into autophagy than if you would on a low-carb or a ketogenic diet. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. 
I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full-spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside, and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full-spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths, and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Do you know when it comes to liver glycogen, when somebody follows a lower carb diet for an extended period of time, particularly, I guess, a ketogenic diet, because the liver itself cannot fuel on ketones. So do you know if like pathways in the liver change as far as how it processes glycogen or glucose? I just know like for me that I used to be able, it seemed to eat a much higher carb intake, specifically fruit. We talked about this last time, but since going low carb recently for quite a while to address some gut issues, now, whenever I try to bring back like fruit or anything, it's like a massive fail every single time I get so like my sugar cravings are through the roof. Whereas before I was completely fine. This is, I do intermittent fasting every single day. So this is all in my eating window. So do you know if within the liver, if there is a change in how 
efficient it is at using glucose, kind of similar to the concept of insulin resistance on a ketogenic diet. And what are your thoughts on that? Like, you know, people will say that on a ketogenic diet that it does create a sort of insulin resistance. Right. Do you think that's healthy or yeah, what are your thoughts on both of those, the liver and just in general? I do think that it probably changes some aspects of how your body uses fuel, especially glycogen and glucose. So generally your glucose demands would drop if you're going on a, like a keto diet and you're decreasing your carbohydrate intake. And that's especially seen like in the brain as well. So after you keto adapt, you can cover nearly like 75% of your brain's energy demands with ketones. And that doesn't specifically apply to the liver. Your liver still uses liver glycogen as its fuel. But, you know, liver glycogen can be created from a lot of different substrates besides glucose or fructose. You can create glycogen even while fasting. For example, like you're converting fatty acids or triglycerides into glucose through the process of gluconeogenesis, as well as amino acids. And lactate even can also be converted into glycogen. So you don't even have to eat anything to refill your muscle glycogen or liver glycogen for that matter. You can just burn your own body fat. And as you become more keto adapted, or as you go into like deeper ketosis, that process essentially just becomes more efficient. So even though, let's say, you may not be eating a lot of carbs, your liver glycogen tends to be still somewhat self-regulating and it's maintaining this sort of a, you know, I'm not sure to what extent can you fill it. Maybe you probably won't be filling it to 100%, but you can still, the liver would probably maintain a certain amount of liver glycogen through the help of converting body fat into liver glycogen through gluconeogenesis. But I'm not exactly sure like what's the amount or what's the threshold specifically. But it, yeah, it is true. Like you can just convert your other fuel substrates into glycogen. So the body is kind of very efficient with that. In terms of the insulin resistance, if you stay in ketosis for a long period of time, then you change these metabolic processes that prefer more ketones and fatty acids for fuel and you kind of start to use your ability to metabolize glucose by becoming slightly insulin resistant and generally it's more of like an it's like survival response for that sort of glucose starvation your body just starts to prioritize the glucose for the brain so it's kind of waiting that okay we haven't had glucose in a long while so whenever we do get it the next chance we have we're going to allow the brain to get the first dose of glucose so to say that we wouldn't have like the muscles and the liver sucking up that glucose and kind of stealing it away from the brain so it's a physiological adaptation to glucose starvation that uh, essentially helps the glucose to be transported into the brain instead of the muscles so the muscles themselves just become insulin resistant in that particular moment when you do introduce the glucose but it's not like pathological insulin resistance that is going to lead to you know disease or something like it, yeah, maybe not be a good idea to start eating a bunch of carbs if you've been keto for like several months and weeks. You may want to kind of gradually uh, reintroduce them to break that insulin resistance and uh, allow the muscles to become sensitive to glucose again. But it's more of like a thing that the body just has to change its metabolic processes. And insulin resistance itself isn't like a massively bad thing in that context. Like being more insulin sensitive would also mean that your body is just very efficiently able to store that food as body fat as well or store it. So, so insulin resistance can actually mean that you're kind of wasting away some of the glucose in that particular moment. So it's a very context dependent situation. 
Yeah, I definitely can see that, that it is very context-driven, like you said. Do you think there is, because people often say that, especially with like gluconeogenesis, even though, it, I mean, it gets the job done pretty pretty well, creating the the glucose and glycogen that's needed. Some people say that's a stressful situation for the body. Does the body even like, quote, think about things that way? Like, is it a stressful process or does it even matter? Or do we just see it as stressful because it's not the norm? Right. Well, I don't think it's a, like a really big stressor. So it does make sense that if your body has to go through like an extra step in order to create glucose compared to just getting it from food directly, then I don't think it's still not like a huge issue in terms of like your general health. Like the burden of gluconeogenesis isn't really there. It's just the only kind of downside for that would be that you're wasting more energy, like you're burning more calories for the gluconeogenesis process to take place, but it's not going to have like a negative health outcome. And the amount of ATP generated from glucose is still small than the amount of ATP generated from fat or ketones. So you can also argue that just eating glucose itself can be like a quote-unquote stressor because you're getting less energy from it compared to something like fat or ketones. And another example as well in the context of gluconeogenesis, like when you're exercising, you're lifting weights, your body also goes through gluconeogenesis by converting lactate into glucose. So high-level athletes who are carb athletes, carb-adapted, they're also experiencing massive amounts of gluconeogenesis, especially during exercise. So you can choose, okay, are you going to get your glucose from eating or are you going to get your glucose from exercise? And arguably the you know, exercise proportion is generally healthier and it's kind of more efficient in that manner. It's true. I remember reading that in the book and I was like, that is fascinating. I've been familiar a little bit about the role of lactate and how I think the brain prefers, like the brain likes lactate, right? As a fuel source. Yeah. The brain has been actually shown that in the presence of fuel alternatives to glucose, then the brain actually prefers those alternatives, whether that be lactate or ketones. So although the kind of primary or the default fuel source is glucose for the brain, it can actually still prefer to use different types of fuel substrates if they're available. The glucose is just like a very, it's a good survival fuel, so to say that if you are in, it's like very easily utilized and fast absorbed as well compared to other ones. So it's just a way of the body going into, okay, we don't know when our last meal is going to come from or next meal is going to come from. So therefore we're going to just burn that glucose or try to absorb it as much as possible. Okay, so here's a super random hypothetical question that would never really even exist. But as a thought experiment, say you had one person fueling on glucose primarily for their glucose, but in a, let's say a calorie restricted state compared to a person creating glucose via gluconeogenesis on a low carb diet. So from those substrates, a higher calorie diet than the other one, but because of the extra step and the inefficiency, perhaps it pans out to the same amount of energy provided to the body, like at the end of the day. <laughs> Does that make sense? So like both of them are providing the same amount of actual energy. Well, yeah, it's, it depends a lot on the macronutrients of the food that they're eating. If you're eating like a higher protein intake, then it's already going to waste more energy for metabolizing that protein because protein has the highest thermic effect of food compared to carbohydrates or fats. So carbohydrates are like the second best uh, highest thermic effect of food and fat has the least. So if you're eating like a somewhat of a higher protein diet, then you're naturally going to burn uh, more calories for digesting it as well. 
Yeah. And where I'm going with that, you actually touched on it is between those two situations, is one of them actually more inflammatory? Is it an inflammatory state to be generating excess energy that's wasted? Right. I've been like wondering that for so long. Maybe, maybe a little bit, especially like, you know, depends on the particular food as well. So too much protein is definitely going to be inflammatory because it upregulates certain pathways such as mTOR and IGF-1, which are these anabolic switches that promote cell growth and uh, proliferation. So if you're constantly in an like overabundance of energy and you're growing too much, then the body kind of tries to mitigate that by triggering inflammation and trying to deal with it. So too much you know, growth is not good because it can promote inflammation, but it can also be linked or it can also lead to the proliferation of you know malignancies and cancerous cells as well so you you know just because of that you don't really want to overdo the anabolism as well and you know too much protein is a stimulating factor for anabolism do you know if it caps out the amount of protein creating the amount of anabolism what i mean by that is say you're doing intermittent fasting and you eat one person eats you know 100 grams of well we'll say the same person <laughs> to make it a better control so a person eats, you know, 100 grams of protein in one meal. Will that make mTOR simulated for like a certain amount of time compared to if they ate 500 grams of protein? Or is it not really about that? Like if it's in an intermittent fasting pattern, I'm just wondering if you can like eat so much protein like in your one meal a day that could you be anabolic the entirety of the next day? Well, first of all, I want to go back to the idea that mTOR, it has a point of diminishing returns. So it's not like, it's not a linear progression that the more protein you eat, the more mTOR you're going to stimulate because the body can only handle certain amounts of muscle protein synthesis at a time. And usually it's said it kind of maxes out around 30 to 40 grams of protein per meal for the muscle protein synthesis. And that's why with fasting, you can't really overstimulate mTOR because you're eating at a, like a smaller frequency. So if you are eating only two times or once a day, then the amount of mTOR stimulation is still, you know, you do it two times. And maybe if you eat like a lar larger amount of protein, for example, like 100 to 200 grams, then it, yeah, the protein is going to stay in your system. You're going to digest that protein over a slower period of time for like several hours afterwards. And that is going to gradually keep you in this, you know, semi-anabolic state. But if you were to try to, you know, if you were to compare that to eating maybe three to four times a day, then the amount of mTOR stimulation would be higher because you're eating more frequently. So mTOR is primarily determined by the eating frequency as well. So you can't overstimulate mTOR in one particular situation because, the, yeah, the body puts a limiting factor on, on itself. So you're not going to grow the more protein you eat the way you overcome this limit is by having more frequent meals. So that's why, you know, bodybuilders and fitness competitors, they eat very frequently. So they want to keep themselves in this anabolic state of growth for longer and for more frequently. And, you know, compared to fasting, the amount of mTOR stimulation would be smaller because you're doing it less frequently. That touches on one of the big questions slash potential myths that is out there that we get all the time is, because the body can seemingly only, quote, process a certain amount of protein at one time. I'll let you talk to whether or not that is a myth. Do you need to be taking in protein mm -hmm. all throughout the day? Or can you have all of your protein in one meal? Right. 
you you could you know depends on the goals like if you want to really maximize muscle growth then yeah it's probably a smarter idea or it's just more effective and faster to eat more frequently but it doesn't mean that you can't absorb more protein in one sitting or in fewer meals so the myth that you need to eat like six meals a day comes from the idea that in order to stimulate muscle protein synthesis which is the process of building muscle tissue then you need to eat about like at least 20 to 30 grams of protein and maximally like 40 grams of protein you're not going to see a higher synthesis of muscle protein if you eat more than that the way you overcome this limit is by having more frequent meals and you can still absorb more protein in one sitting it's just that the effect on muscle protein synthesis isn't going to be larger you're not going to achieve the same amount of muscle growth by eating only once a day compared to eating six times a day if the protein is equal because the frequency on the six meals a day is higher and you're able to stimulate muscle protein synthesis more frequently whereas with like one meal a day or two meals a day then you can eat the same amount of protein but you won't be able to build more muscle because you're reaching this threshold after which your body isn't going to build more tissue. Okay, so the goal seems to be the key factor there. Gotcha. Right, yeah, it's, it's for the per- person. And for example, uh, let's say recreational lifters and those people who don't have like specifically professional goals, then for them, it's a few studies have shown that, for example, women specifically eating their entire days of protein within four hours then they don't see like decrease in lean body mass. So they're not losing muscle. So that's like a, at least, you know, yeah, you're not going to be losing muscle even if you eat your entire days of protein in like a shorter window. But it's still possible to like build muscle with it as well. It's just going to be much more slower. And it's definitely not like as fast as you would like be eating several times a day. Okay, sort of similar to that. It seems like adding an extra protein to one's diet, especially if their goal is weight loss specifically, that that often has a beneficial effect due to, you know, increased satiety, also the less likelihood of it being stored as fat, the excess protein, thermogenic effect. What are your thoughts on excess protein and the potential for fat storage and also excess MCTs? Is there even a pathway for fat storage for MCTs, like C8 oil, like pure C8 oil? Well, I think that you probably won't be able to eat like unlimited amounts of MCTs and get away with it. So I think maybe like if you consume too much MCTs, then you're probably going to get like some diarrhea or some other digestive problems, which essentially kind of eliminates that MCT all. So you're not really digesting it fully. If your body would still consume MCTs in excess, then it probably would be converted to body fat eventually. So it's just that MCTs may raise your metabolism a little bit, but it's not like unlimited amounts, so to say. You know, the same applies to protein. You can, protein does raise your metabolism, but it does so by the thermic effect of food. So you're just wasting more energy on the digestion of protein, but you can't really still eat unlimited amounts of protein if you crush your uh, calorie threshold. It's harder to convert it into fat, but it's still possible eventually. So the metabolic boost that you get from protein versus MCT, I'm not trying to go on a really crazy tangent rabbit hole, but I just, these are the things I think about. So you mentioned the thermic effect of food would be the case for protein. For MCTs, is it not a thermic effect? Is it more just how it literally boosts the metabolic rate? Is it different? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's slightly different. So it's MCTs are like, they kind of bypass certain stages of energy production as well. 
that in the mitochondria compared to you know regular fats that have to go through more steps but i'm not sure exactly like you know the fat itself has has a much lower thermic effect than protein or carbohydrates uh, but mcts they raise your metabolism through like a different mechanism okay the reason i'm asking i've been experimenting with like very high doses of mcts and it's very fascinating the exuberant amount of calories i've been taking in through them and actually like lose weight <laughs> i'm like this is insane <laughs> well you know you can also be affecting your spontaneous movement like you just get more energy and therefore you're burning more calories as well by just moving around more and you're kind of giving your body this sort of additional source of calories it can use which which essentially helps you to burn more calories as well during the daytime yeah i think that's often a common factor but weirdly enough with me that's not the case because i've been doing it in a low carb context and i've actually been feeling less neat (laughs) non-exercise activity thermogenesis compared to my carb days. It's weird. The body is so interesting. <laughs> that's all That's all I know. For sure. Well, one thing I have experienced though, especially on the high MCT meals, is I get extremely, extremely hot, which is pretty much when I'm like contemplating like my question earlier where I'm like, is this excess energy production aging my body? What are your thoughts on the metabolism and longevity? Because I know we see in a lot of studies that longevity seems to correlate with lower thyroid levels, for example, and even like calorie restriction seems to correlate to longevity, which would insinuate a lower metabolic rate. What are your thoughts on the metabolism as far as how it relates to longevity? Calorie restriction is one like one of the surest ways of extending lifespan in almost all species. You know, the problem is that it's not necessarily caused by the calorie restriction itself. It's more of the caused by the pathways that calorie restriction stimulates. So you can achieve similar effects without calorie restriction by doing intermittent fasting and you know exercising and those sort of things. Because if you were to be try to identify why does calorie restriction work, then science has found that certain pathways such as you know autophagy is one of them, but there's also like sirtuins and AMPK specifically. Those are the pathways that make calorie restriction work. And they essentially trigger like DNA repair, as well as release of stem cells and, you know, removal of junk material and reduction in oxidative stress. So the body is just repairing itself. And calorie restriction is just a form of, of, it's a stressor that stimulates these pathways. But fasting has actually been shown to mimic calorie restriction without the reduction of calories. So for example, in mice, they feed different groups of mice the same amount of food but they do it in different time windows so one group eats throughout the entire day and you know ad libitum with no time restriction the second group eats over the course of 13 hours which is basically like a standard standard feeding window and the last group eats only once a day within three hours and the group that lives the longest is the one who eats once a day despite eating the same amount of calories so you know the goal kind of goes to show that the goal isn't necessarily going to be calorie restriction or starvation the goal is to find why does calorie restriction work and are there like better ways of of achieving that because calorie restriction can also have like quite a few uh, negative side effects like you're going to lose your muscle mass you're going to feel cold and feel tired you have low thyroid and all these negative side effects of chronic uh, energy restriction so you don't necessarily have to you know the main point is that with fasting and time restricted eating you're going to essentially gain the benefits of calorie restriction 
without having to reduce the calories that much or you know it would be still a good idea to not overeat calories but you don't probably have to go into like this severe malnourished state to reap those benefits as long as you confine the eating window because when you're fasting you're experiencing higher rates of autophagy and higher rates of sirtuin activation anyway than if you were to be eating because even if it's calorie restricted because the fasting is a, like a more potent stimulus it's a, like a higher energy stressor so even like exercise as well so if you combine some form of time restricted eating with uh, exercise then you probably don't have to like restrict your calories you know that much i think that's a huge paradigm shift especially in the intermittent fasting world and there's been this ongoing debate for so long about whether or not the benefits of fasting are purely due to calorie restriction. I feel like every other study is asking that. Yeah, well, calorie restriction is a part of it. Like if you were to be overeating with fasting, then you're probably not going to see those effects. So you probably have to stay around somewhere your maintenance or or something like that to see like a positive effect. You think so? You think even with the fasting could mitigate some of the negative effects of overeating. Like if you overeat within time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting, then the metabolic side effects would be smaller than if you were to do it over the course of the entire day because you're mitigating the damage with extended periods of fasting. So if you eat one meal a day with McDonald's, <laughs> then it's probably less harmful for you to than if you were to be eating McDonald's three times a day even if the calories are the same, because you're kind of suppressing the inflammation with the fasting period. Whereas if you're eating, you know, three times a day with McDonald's, you're keeping your inflammation high chronically and uh, kind of all the time. Oh my goodness, three times a day with McDonald's. <laughs> not, not the best situation. Well, that's how most people eat. I know. I'm not judging. I'm just saying, like, I just know how it makes me feel personally. And it's really nice to be freed from that, especially with intermittent fasting. I even, there was one study and I'm going to have to track it down. And I don't remember, I think it was in a book that referenced it. So it's probably going to take me a while to find it, but it, it was talking about comparing, I don't know if it was rodents or people and it was probably people because it was comparing quote, healthy foods eaten throughout the day compared to unquote unhealthy foods eaten in a intermittent fasting or a time restricted eating pattern. Right. Yeah. I think it's one of the mice studies that have been done with, with time-restricted eating. Like a lot of uh, these quote-unquote high-fat diets in research are just like processed food diets with high amounts of carbs with fat. So it's basically like a McDonald's diet for mice. And they see that, yeah, like the mice who eat over the course of like eight hours the same junk food diet, then they're still healthier and they have less body fat then the mice who eat the same diet, the same McDonald's diet over the course of like 12 hours or the entire day. So yeah, like the confinement of the eating window shows, yeah, that the, the mice are still healthier despite eating a bad diet. Well, there was one study that it was slightly different because it compared the unhealthy diet in a fasted pattern to a quote healthy diet in a non-fasted pattern. And it actually saw benefits with the fasting, which was like shocking. I'm gonna have to track that one down. That makes sense because, you know, any kind of eating triggers some inflammation because you're having to, you know, metabolism itself always creates byproducts of inflammatory cytokines and oxidative stress. So uh, if you eat a lot, you know, that goes back to the idea of does having a high metabolism or a low metabolism determine your lifespan. So if your metabolism is super fast, you're burning a bunch of calories, 
then you are inevitably going to create slightly more oxidative stress because of metabolism being revved up more frequently. Whereas if you were to be confining the window, then it would be a slightly smaller effect on the oxidative stress. So you would experience a lower inflammation. So yeah, it's, it's generally eating anything, even if it's healthy food, can become like a stressor on the body if you do it too frequently. And it's generally a good idea to give your metabolism and digestion like a longer break every day. Speaking of oxidative stress, how do you feel about antioxidants from foods versus our body naturally producing antioxidants endogenously? I know this comes up a lot in like the carnivore movement. They'll say that the body's creating its own natural antioxidants. And then another really quick thing related to that, I was listening. This was one of the things that made me think I really wanted to bring back fruit into my life. I was listening to a, a Chris Master John podcast, and he was mentioning that something I hadn't heard before, but that in the ketogenic state, it was good for basically the whole body, like the brain, the hypothalamus, everything, but it was at the expense of glutathione production in the liver. So basically the liver kind of took a hit, whereas the rest of the body benefited. And I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. So yeah, oxidative stress, glutathione, things like that. What are your thoughts about that coming from, you know, supported via food compared to endogenously? Well, yeah, I think that your body does do like a really good job producing its own antioxidants and kind of maintaining strength antioxidant defense systems with things like glutathione and NRF2 and even autophagy can be considered like some, some form of, you know, detox or antioxidant. And you definitely don't need a bunch of like antioxidants from food or supplements to maintain health. And, you know, studies show that a lot of the antioxidant supplementation isn't, you know, increasing longevity or it doesn't really affect health span or anything like that. It doesn't even prevent cancer or cardiovascular disease. So that basically they do help to maybe mitigate some oxidative stress, but you don't want to avoid it completely either. So you would probably want to rely more on your body's own endogenous antioxidant defense systems like glutathione and getting your antioxidant boost from things like exercise and fasting and taking saunas and cold, because those things are actually much more, you know, potent anyway. They're much more potent than any kind of supplement or any kind of antioxidant from food. I think that generally, like if you, if you live like a very low inflammation lifestyle, you're not experiencing any inflammation or any oxidative stress on a grand scale, then you probably don't need to rely on e even the antioxidants from food or vegetables or fruit. But maybe some people, you know, if you do, I, I, I still think that it's a good idea to keep some vegetables and fruit in your diet just because your body would also get some form of the xenohormesis, you know, the eating the fiber and eating the polyphenols from the plants. Those things are still also going to trigger some of the same processes as you would like with, with fasting, like the glutathione and, and those things. So you're getting some antioxidant boost from the vegetables as well, if you eat them. It's just like the argument against that is that it's a net negative because the, the, the plants also come with some uh, collateral damage or something like that, which I think that most people really don't have to worry about, like <laughs> that the, the amount that can still make your body you know, more robust in a sense of being able to deal with that. So it's like a positive hormetic stressor still. I feel like for a lot of people, the best of both worlds could be doing intermittent fasting with you know, those plant and those hermetic stressors in the eating window. So then it's kind of like best of both worlds. <laughs> it's like, for example, the idea that a bunch of antioxidants and vegetables are good 
the the reason it's been shown to be somewhat beneficial for some some cohorts and some studies in some studies is that those people they aren't really healthy people anyway <laughs> you know the average person isn't isn't exercising that regularly they're not doing fasting and they're not you know taking saunas and those things so their own antioxidant defense systems are already pretty weak so they're kind of fragile and they're not resilient compared to someone who is let's say someone who is already taking care of their health they're exercising regularly they're fasting then for them the effect from antioxidants and vegetables is definitely much smaller than for someone who is you know, eating the McDonald's diet, then of course, yeah, their health is going to improve and their inflammation is going to lower if they swap out the burger and fries for like a salad and some vegetables. So they start to eat better and they start to eat more healthy. Then for them, they will experience lower inflammation just because of that, just because of removing the junk food. For most people, let's say health conscious people, the effect for them is much smaller. And generally the more potent stimulus is still fasting or exercise. Yeah, the great old healthy user bias. It's kind of like when they do studies on, and we don't have to go into all this, but the role of meat or, you know, red meat and such in in people. And I like when they do the studies though, where they they do it. I think they did one like recently where they compared people who specifically shopped at like health food stores. And when you look at those type of people, like the meat eaters versus the non-meat eaters, there's like not a difference in the health outcomes. I'm starting to believe like, yeah, that the food itself doesn't have like a huge impact on your general health anyway. Like the bigger, bigger impact actually comes from either fasting or exercise and saunas and those things like the hormetic stress, because the food itself, although it's a very important factor and you can't really, let's say, out-exercise a bad diet. There's, it's still possible to a certain extent, for example, like we talked about earlier, that if you're fasting and you're eating a junk food diet, then you can still be healthy just because of the fasting, uh, that the fasting is going to kind of counterbalance the negative effects from the diet. So the diet itself doesn't have to be even, you know, the most pristine diet. And it doesn't really have to be that clear, clean, as long as you're counterbalancing it with like exercise and those things. It's not like even what you eat that matters. It's like when you eat it and when you fast. Exactly. Like I think up until recently, people have been thinking it's all about the food or the fast, whereas especially with like the work of David Sinclair, and I know we both have had him on our podcast recently. It seems to be, like you just said, the genetic factors, the genes and everything and the pathways are getting activated from the fasting, which you can also get from all these other practices. Speaking of, so super random, have you started? Because I think last time we talked, had you used NMN? NMN? Yeah, yeah, I did. I'm using the Quicksilver Scientific NMN with trimethylglycine. So yeah, I've been using it. It's pretty good. Yeah. So two questions about that. Because when we talked, I hadn't started taking it yet because I was interviewing David Sinclair like the next week. And I was like, I'm going to ask him about it. I have the same version as you. I've been noticing a lot of benefits from that, which for listeners, it serves as a precursor to NAD in the body, which I think also has, I think a huge, huge effect just with everything we're talking about with um, longevity and genetics and our body dealing with stressors and inflammation and everything. Super random question though. So it gets formulated with TMG, which you mentioned. This is kind of like a few different questions here that we can go with. Okay. TMG, is it just a form of glycine basically? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Basically. Okay. So glycine and leucine and all of the scenes, methionine, what are your thoughts on how those different types of protein affect longevity, affect autophagy, and 
do they all, I know like leucine seems to be the most potent stimulator as far as like breaking a fast, but the methionine seems to be really correlated to mTOR. What are your thoughts on all the different branches of amino acids? The uh, amino acids, there's uh, different types of them. And generally like the branch chain amino acids are more uh, anabolic, so to say that they're more used for muscle protein synthesis. And you mentioned leucine. Uh, Leucine is the key amino acid that dictates uh, muscle protein synthesis and uh, mTOR activation. Generally, like foods that have higher amounts of leucine are, you know, almost all foods that have protein have it, but generally animal protein and eggs and fish and those things have more leucine as well as methionine. So methionine is the most abundant amino acid that you can't really avoid fully, but generally plant foods have less leucine and less methionine. But any kind of protein can, let's say, affect autophagy, but some proteins and some, some, some amino acids affect it less. So glycine is one of those things that has like a less of an effect on autophagy and mTOR because it's, it, it's not like mTOR stimulating. Generally, I think I've seen some research showing that it can also stimulate autophagy a little bit, but it's probably again like in small amounts because glycine can help with lowering the balance between methionine and glycine, so to say. So if your methionine is high, then it's an indication that your mTOR is also going to be somewhat elevated because uh, methionine is like a growth, one of these anabolic amino acids, whereas glycine isn't so much. And with higher amounts of glycine, you can essentially counterbalance the negative effects of too much methionine. So that's how it kind of affects the energy balance of your body. Okay. Yeah. It's sort of a selfish question coming from me because like, I'll take that in, I can never say it, Inamin. I've been taking it during my fast, but I've been wondering because it's formulated with TMG, if that was a problem. <laughs> it's not that uh, at that point, it's not like a big problem. And uh, the reason why it's combined with TMG has to do with methylation, actually. So if you are taking NAD precursors, whether that be NMN or nicotinamide riboside, then you're losing some of your methyl donors in the process because they consume your methyl donors. And one of the methyl donors is TMG. So you're kind to essentially give yourself back the, the methyl donors that you lose by taking these NAD precursors and you're supplementing them so that you wouldn't run out of the methyl donors themselves. So if you run out of you know, if your methylation starts to decrease and suffer, then you're just going to actually feel less energized. You're going to actually feel more of like an energy crisis, which is the opposite that you would want to get from taking NAD. <laughs> so that, that's why it's combined with TMG so that you avoid the situation where you're, you're losing your methyl donors. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. 
I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes 
none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Okay, gotcha. So I can feel feel good about that one. And for listeners, I'll put a link to that one that we both take in the show notes. And I actually have a discount for listeners if they, on any of the Quicksilver products, I think it's a 10% discount. So definitely check out the show notes for that. And which actually, have you taken their Keto Before Six supplement? Yeah, I have, yeah. So that's another one. I just started taking it recently. And I wanted to ask you about it because I feel like, okay, it's so funny. So on the intermittent fasting podcast, every single day we get a question emailed to us like, does this break my fast? Does this break my fast? And (laughs) we always just kind of laugh. But now I feel like I'm asking it (laughs) of myself, like with the keto before six, I'm like, does this break my fast? I was looking at all the ingredients in it. And, you know, it's a lot of ingredients that you actually discuss in your book, which seem to, you know, actually encourage autophagy. So I am wondering, taking things during the fast, like, I think it has like, you know, berberine, quercetin, resveratrol, things like that. What are your thoughts on stuff like that to take in in the fasted state? Yeah, I think that they definitely wouldn't break autophagy. And, the, you know, some of the ingredients can actually stimulate it. Like, you know, you mentioned berberine and those. And essentially taking them in a fasted state would in a way speed up the process of going into autophagy and ketosis so that's the entire idea behind the product is that you're going to take keto before six during the daytime and you're you're not eating carbs and that stimulates ampk pathway which in turn is going to speed up the depletion of liver glycogen and encourage the production of ketones And then in the evening, you kind of break this idea. You're going to kick yourself out of ketosis uh, by eating carbs. And you're going to be back in ketosis the next day by taking that supplement again, which can definitely work to a certain extent. And it does stimulate the autophagy process as well if you take it. Okay, very interesting. And that actually reminded me of something else I meant to ask way earlier. But do you know how long... Because people often say that like amino acids from protein, you know, they're not stored as energy substrates, do they last in the bloodstream? Do they hang out in the bloodstream? Like, how does that work? So like when you eat meat or something, is it like the protein is either used as fuel and for growth, but then does it circle in the bloodstream? Yeah, like protein can't be stored for like a long period of time, 
the same way as you can store body fat or glycogen. Protein is like a like a short-term energy source or you know energy substrate that can be used for repair and growth and maintenance. So if you're that's why like eating excess protein doesn't mean that you're going to store it and then your body's going to use it for later. But it does stay around in your system for slightly longer than people think that, you like we said earlier, you're not finishing your digestion after you stop eating. Like the food is going to be digested for several hours after you eat. And protein generally is like a slower digesting food uh, that's going to take at least a few hours before you actually fully digest it. And then there's also some amino acid pools in your body that retain some of the amino acids for like a longer period of time. And generally any, you know, it's probably depending on the type of protein, but usually like the amino acid pool can store uh, amino acids for, you know, up to like 16 hours or something like that. And generally not longer than 24 hours. Oh, but it could be up to 24 hours? Yeah. So like if I, if you're doing a one meal a day thing? Yeah, you could probably, if you have, let's say, depends on the type of protein as well. So usually... For example, eggs are much more faster absorbing protein and faster digestible protein than from steak or some meat. So the meat is going to be probably staying in your system for longer than uh, eggs or whey protein, for example, which is like a, even faster than an egg. Yeah, that actually brings us to what I wanted to ask you next. Because I think just like autophagy, the whole myth that we started with at the beginning that it's either on or off. With fasting, I think there's this idea that it's just like, all meals are the same. You're in the fed state. So it doesn't really matter like the composition or the type of protein, but something that you talk about in your book is that there's actually levels of the potential for autophagy from different types of food. So you have like the high tour and, and how, and how much they stimulate mTOR. So you have the high tour, the mod tour, the low tour, the intor, which is neutral. Then you have the ones that actually encourage autophagy, which was the, what was it? The high AT. ATG, yeah, like it's an abbreviation of autophagy proteins. In the book, I kind of outlined this scale for determining what's the kind of anabolic score of a particular food or the autophagy score of a particular food. And that is primarily determined by the amount of amino acids, specifically leucine, as well as carbohydrates, which are going to determine how how much mTOR or how much autophagy are they going to are, are they going to stimulate? So high protein foods such as like we mentioned already eggs, fish, meat, those things are more mTOR stimulating, which is why I can categorize them or call them as like high tor foods. And then there's like moderate mTOR, mTOR foods, which would be you know they do have some protein and amino acids, but they're generally not as high in leucine or methionine, for example. And those things can be like fish or even like organ meats can be categorized here. And even like plant-based foods, like, you know, some lentils or also carbohydrates, they can still stimulate mTOR and, you know, switch over from a catabolic state into an anabolic state. And for example, some neutral foods would be anything that I would, you know, anything that doesn't really affect these processes that significantly and they're somewhat neutral. And those would be, you know, vegetables. And those things like fruit even can be put here. And the autophagy foods are things that stimulate autophagy, like coffee, apple cider vinegar, teas, some polyphenols, and even like, you know, these adaptogens, medicinal mushrooms, berberine, uh, resveratrol, and those things. I was fascinated reading it, especially the medicinal mushrooms, especially because I 
recently got a lot of samples of like the Four Sigmatic mushroom coffee. And I was like, oh, this is perfect timing. I can, you know, read about read about it there. For listeners, it's really fascinating. I didn't realize one thing you mentioned was that like red meat, for example, I think it, it was a, a mod tour, but you said that it's actually not that anabolic compared to eggs and some other things, which I think most people would be like, what? <laughs> they probably think that like a steak is like the most anabolic thing there is, but really there were some other combinations that were much more so. Yeah. Well, it depends on like the amount of the food as well. So for example, a three ounce steak is probably less anabolic than 10 eggs or and vice versa. One egg isn't necessarily more anabolic than a three ounce steak. So it depends on the amounts as well. But usually, yeah, like the eggs are somewhat more anabolic and mTOR stimulating because they contain more leucine per gram and such. But for example, if you even were to combine, you know, the mTOR isn't stimulated by protein, you know, only it's also stimulated by carbs and insulin specifically kind of over exaggerates the particular anabolic response of any food. So if you combine like protein with carbs, then that's going to spike mTOR more than if you were to eat like only protein, because the insulin is like this leverage that kind of directs the body in a certain direction. And insulin is like a storage hormone and it's an anabolic hormone. So it makes sense that it also like if you combine any kind of food with insulin or carbs, then that's going to raise the mTOR uh, more. So that's why like a low carb diet is, although like a low carb diet may be higher in meat or protein, it's not necessarily going to be more anabolic or it's not going to necessarily stimulate more mTOR because the insulin is low. So you're taking out one variable out of the equation. Whereas if you were to be eating, you know, uh, chicken breast and rice, then that would be still higher in mTOR and more anabolic because you're getting both the protein and you're getting the carbs and insulin, which kind of combines the spiking together. Gotcha. For listeners, definitely check out the book because Seam has this whole awesome list that goes through the different types of foods and combinations. It's so fascinating. I'm in all these categories. And then he also has, because we don't really have time to go into it today, but if you are interested in like bodybuilding, exercise, things like that, gym routines, how to best do that, how to do that with fasting, how to support that, it's all in the book. So definitely get it. Like I said, I mention your book now on the other podcast all the time because we'll get questions about, you know, exercise. I'm like, just go read Seam's book because it's all in there. <laughs> so taking the lazy way out. But I, I thank you for your work. It's super, super amazing. One thing I love about your book is it does go so deep into the science of all of this and, you know, really makes you rethink. It's kind of like what you were saying about, it's not the food. It's more like these other lifestyle practices and these other stressors and these other things that we do. And I was wondering if you could just talk briefly to your thoughts about the whole, how we can, especially for people who feel like they're stuck on the hedonic treadmill, which is something that you, you talk about a lot, like this idea that our threshold for certain pleasures, you know, can change and, we may feel like we're stuck in these things that we need because, you know, it's a reward that we want, but really we can change that and we we can get joy and fulfillment from really any lifestyle. I think if we, you know, once it becomes the new routine, the new habit, what are your, your advice for people who feel like they're just stuck on this, you know, finding it hard to jump into these things like fasting or changing their diet or other <laughs> cold thermogenesis <laughs> sauna? I mean, that's probably easier to just do because you just go do it. But 
yeah, what's your what's your advice there? The idea is that you can never be like fully satisfied if you start chasing the pleasures and the the hedonic pursuits, so to say that if this is essentially your body adapts always to the stimulus that it receives, uh, whether that be the kind of temperature of your house, whether that be the food that you eat, or whether that be yeah, like these different let's say comforts that you choose to pick up on. And vice versa, your body isn't necessarily happy because of those things. It because it's happy because of a certain balance or this certain threshold that it's at in a particular moment. So you can calibrate this this homeostasis or this level of threshold basically according to your will and according to how you reframe things. So for example, if you're in an ice bath, then you know objectively you can think that okay this is pretty harsh and it's pretty uncomfortable and painful and it's like hell but in your own subjective mind you can definitely reframe it by thinking about it oh yeah i'm you know helping my longevity i'm increasing my fat burning you know feeling awesome i'm you know doing this some sort of sort of hard difficult thing and i'm actually feeling more joyful for because of doing that and you can apply the same mentality to things like exercise and fasting you just have to kind of remind yourself that although these things can be difficult they will eventually help me to you know be healthier and essentially also help me to reach these goals that i do want in the end which would be like to be more happy and be more fulfilled in life so yeah usually i when people are stuck in some sort of like vicious cycles of either you know not being able to overcome some addictions food addictions or something then usually you need to kind of detach yourself from these these things for a certain threshold of for a certain period of time so that your body would kind of reset its sensitivity to them and for example like yeah the sugar detox is like a stupid word but you can essentially that's 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 how you can reset your taste buds and kind of overcome these addictions so fasting itself is like a very effective way of you know resetting the heronic homeostasis and kind of resetting your taste buds and kind of allowing your body to become more sensitive to those things again and afterwards you don't really actually want them after you kind of rehabituated them so usually you know going for a long fast or going for any kind of fasting is 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 hard at first but it's definitely like the most effective uh, way of going about it yeah i think fasting is absolutely amazing for that I do wonder though, I think for a lot of people, it can really, I mean, you said like you don't even want them afterwards. I think it can make you not feel like you have to have them. But then I do wonder just to throw a slight complication into it, especially with like the work of like Stefan Guillenet and stuff and the hyperpalatability of food and how it, you know, ties into our innate evolutionary layer like like the lizard like like the innate want for stocking up on calories like our bodies sort of want to take in all the calories maybe rather than not so it makes me think that i don't know because some people say that after they do intermittent fasting they never again like my co-host jen on the intermittent fasting podcast she said she's not even tempted at all like that she wouldn't even like the taste of these old foods whereas for me and this might just be me but i still would like all the things. I don't feel like I have to have them is a difference. Fasting is going to, you know, it's never that a particular food is bad or, you know, cake and donuts and junk food, they're not bad by themselves. They're only bad if people overconsume them and if people are addicted to them. So you can still incorporate aspects of moderation and can still include them into your diet. 
if you do it willingly and if you do it you know deliberately you're not doing it out of this addiction or you're not doing it uncontrollable of, of i can't stop eating them that's the problem uh, the problem if you do it like okay i choose to have this food in moderation then that's perfectly fine and you can like we said earlier you can mitigate all the negative side effects with some form of fasting or something something like that like there's nothing wrong with that and the fasting itself is just going to detach yourself from the addiction for a certain period of time so that you, so that you can regain your kind of sanity almost so that you can rebuild your self-control and you can teach yourself moderation afterwards because even if you are you know helping yourself to avoid let's say you know you avoid these treats these processed foods but you're still not able to control yourself then then it's still not optimal it's still it's not, not an ideal situation because you're still although you're coping the attachment with fasting you're not really completely free from it because if you were to eat it then you would kind of lose your your sanity and you would like rebound massively whereas if you were to be able to you know moderate yourself and practice you know balance then that would be still a better option than to completely avoid it. So the problem is never the food itself. The problem is always the particular attachment to it and whether or not you're able to control it. This is so true. So true. I think so many people think fasting, especially if they haven't done it, that it's restriction and that it's a state of wanting when really I think it can be complete freedom. It's wonderful. Which brings us to... Final question that I ask every guest on this podcast, and it's kind of perfect with what we're just talking about with the role of, you know, the mindset and the attachment and, you know, the voices in our head and everything like that. So I have recently come to realize just how important something like gratitude is even, which is something, that's something really great that you can do while you're fasting. If you're struggling, switch from like a, you know, just think of something that you're grateful for. So Seem, what is something that you're grateful for? Well, I would say that at the moment... I'm pretty grateful for just the kind of current state of humanity as it is so that, you know, most of the world is pretty safe and they're not really, you know, in this dire living conditions, although, you know, a lot of the world is, but it's still getting better. And at least like most of the Western world, you know, you still have a roof over your head. You're not going to starve. Even if you try to do fasting, you still have like some security and such. So it's you know, in the past, humans were always exposed to the elements and it was very like uncertain for them to live and it was like very dangerous. Whereas in the modern world, you don't really have a lot of like dangers that you can, you know, you know, die to. And that's why it's a, like, like a good reminder that, yeah, like, although we modern people, we tend to whine a lot about these different things it's still always better than it was in the past. So we have to kind of remind ourselves that it's, there's a lot of things to be uh, grateful for. That's a really unique answer. I really like that. Speaking of grateful, A, I'm ridiculously grateful for all of your work, your podcast, your book, everything you're doing. I think it's, I mean, I've learned so much from it. And I think, I mean, I know so many people are and you're you're really making a stamp on humanity. So thank you for that. And thank you for recording again. <laughs> yeah. I feel so bad, but this was round two. So thank you so much. Although I, I really like the way the conversation went. I'm like super happy. So sending out gratitude that hopefully this one worked this time around. So if listeners would like to, how can they best follow your work? I'll put links to your book, your podcast. How else can they follow you? Yeah, well, my website is seamlun.com. There you can find some articles, more like in-depth you know, science and research 
but uh, on YouTube, I'm Seamland. And uh, yeah, like my podcast is also Body Mind Empowerment with Seamland. Are you on Instagram? Oh, yeah, there you are. Yeah. I'm going to follow you on Instagram. I recently decided to try to be more active on Instagram. <laughs> but yeah, so for listeners, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much. This was a really, really epic, awesome conversation. Yeah, it was a good talking. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.